You are listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Assembly, Sedalia, Missouri. Thank you for tuning in. For more information about the church, you can reach us at www.bethelassembly.info. My name is Ryan Tatham. My wife and I were the student ministry pastors here at Bethel Assembly, and I have the honor and the privilege today of continuing in our series, My Family Circus, talking about our teenage circus. If any of you guys have ever interacted with teenagers, you would understand the circus that follows them. So, um, I've been around most of your teenagers for the last five years, and I get to experience that circus every Sunday night, a little bit of controlled chaos, but we love Jesus and go after him. So, today what i what i want to get rid of expectations real quick okay i'm a youth pastor so just <laughs> drop your expectations out the door so um good and so also guys I, um i time myself and my message is at 45 minutes so um i need all of us to set our clocks back 10 minutes and i'll make the time all right good I just shave 10 minutes off of it but this is not a self-help, um, raise a 13 to 19-year-old kid, and they're going to be perfect, three steps to make a perfect teenager. There's no such thing as a perfect teenager. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. If I did know those three steps, I would write a book and be a millionaire. And um, so this is not what that is. But all the teenagers, don't check out, because what this is, is something that's practical that applies to your life. All the young adults, don't check out, because what this is, is something practical that can apply to your life. And all the adults that aren't parents, don't check out, because what this is, is something practical that can apply to your life. And all you parents of young children, don't check out, because this is, one day you'll have teenagers, FYI. Um, Don't check out. We're going to talk about discipleship. And we're going to talk about a few things, but I want to read some scripture real quick, because God cares about how we raise our children. Pastor last week so eloquently, um, that's a big word for me, but um, so eloquently talked about discipline versus punishment. We're, we're going to hit on that a little bit, but let's, uh, let's throw up Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 21. It says, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as Frotlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as as the heavens are above the earth. That's a long time because the (laughs) heavens have always been above the earth and they will always be above the earth. Guys, so God wants us to pour into our children, not just anything, his words. So let's look at Proverbs real quick. Um, 22.6, this is a very well-known thing. Train up a child in the way he should go or she should go. And even when he is old or she is old, they will not depart from it. So, some of you guys might be thinking, and I pray that this is not the case, but Pastor Ryan, 
These are Old Testament scriptures. Surely God doesn't expect me to carve time out of my busy schedule or put down my smartphone, get off social media, turn off the television, and spend time with my children and speak to them about God. Surely not. That's why we have you. Huh. Yeah, you're right. You're right. This is Old Testament. And I pray that none of you guys are actually thinking that. I'm being a little facetious. But um, let's see what Jesus has to say about children. Because Jesus has something to say. And I think it's kind of interesting. So, throw up Matthew. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Huh. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eyes cause you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two and be thrown into the hell of fire. There is a lot here that we're not going to go through, but I want to focus in for a moment. And Jesus cares about how we raise our children and our interactions with our children. He straight up says, anyone who causes one of these little ones that believe in me to sin, it's better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and be drowned in the sea. God cares. That's not old T. That's not uh, Old Testament. That's, That's Jesus. So, a lot of times in dealing the last, uh, Five years and before that, talking with parents over the course of time, I noticed that a lot of parents want to focus on the behavior of their teenager, the behavior of their kids. And who doesn't? I want a well-behaved kid. I don't want to launch an imbecile on a brat into society. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't want to do that. I want a well-behaved kid. But so much of the time to get well-behaved and good kids, we focus on punishment of bad behavior And then we end up developing the very thing that we don't want. And so what I'm going to suggest today is not that discipline isn't important. Discipline is direly important. Pastor read it last week. If you do not discipline your children, you hate them. That's that's the Bible. God even disciplines those he loves. If we love our children, we discipline them. But... I'm going to suggest to you that it's not the most important thing. It's important. I think the most important thing we can do to our children is disciple them for Jesus Christ. It is the most important. And it's the most challenging because discipleship is going to cause parents to step up their game. It's going to cause parents to grow closer to God. It's going to cause parents to take effort 
in their relationship with God and in their children's relationship with God. So, you might say, Pastor Ryan, well, that's why I have you in their life. So you can make disciples. That's why um, we have Tanya to help make disciples of our children. I've heard that before. And I see your kids for four to six hours a week. Depends on if we have an event, sometimes longer. How long do you see your kids? My job is not to make disciples of your children. Your job is to make disciples of your children. My job is to equip them for the spreading of the gospel. So we coordinate our efforts. If they're being discipled and becoming like Jesus at home, then I can better equip them to spread the gospel and make disciples. The only two people, don't get me wrong, I love your children and I will bend over backwards to help them become a disciple of Christ. I will. I love your kids. But the two most important kids that I want to make a disciple of for Jesus is Sky and Tatham and Peyton Ryan Tatham. Those are the two that I want to disciple the most. Everything after that um, is fair game. <laughs> but guys, I want to talk to you about discipleship. Let's define discipleship real quick. Um, a person who is a pupil or adherent to the doctrines of another, one who embraces and assists in the spreading of the teaching of another, any follower of another person. Guys, get this. We're all making disciples whether we want to or not. You're making disciples of your children already. If you don't believe me, how many of you guys do things that your parents did? Huh. Because they made a disciple of you. It might be a good thing. You know, you might... You might have inherited a really short temper from your dad or your mom. You might, you know, or, or you might have inherited a really good sense of humor. The other day I found myself saying a phrase that used to be a pet peeve, and it still is. I couldn't believe I said it. I'm like, oh, man, it's like a curse word to me. I said, honey, why won't you get me a drink of water? That used to drive me insane. My dad would say that all the time. Why won't you? I'm like, I never said I wouldn't. You know, like, it just it was a pet peeve of mine. But I caught myself doing it. We make disciples whether we want to or not. So we might as well tweak our discipleship process and make disciples of Christ. So discipleship is modeled. Jesus made his disciples by living a real authentic relationship with God in front of them. His disciples saw him when the Pharisees came before him and tried to trap him. And they saw when the Pharisees tried to get under Jesus' skin. And then they turned around and saw how he responded to them. And then he saw how he responded to them in in private. Guess what made the bigger impact? Is when Jesus walked away and he was in private with his disciples and they had conversation. He didn't badmouth the Pharisees. He didn't do any of that. He, He was about the kingdom. He was about God's vision and purpose for his life. What are we doing in private in front of our children? Because it wasn't the multitudes when he discipled. It was the private moments when Jesus made the biggest impact. So I'm going to give you four practical steps of discipleship that will foster Christian followers. Um, I want to give a disclaimer real quick. I already gave a few. But I want us to understand, John Lindell, pastor of James River Church in Springfield, says it really well. 
When the tools of discipleship become the rules of the discipleship, it's no longer discipleship. These are tools. These are not rules. We are justified by Christ. We, we are saved by grace so that no man can boast. It's all on Jesus. So when we implement this stuff in our lives, in our family, it's not going to make God love you anymore. It's not going to make God love you any less. It's not going to give you special favor. It's not going to make you more righteous. They're tools. Don't make them rules. Because when you make them rules, it's no longer discipleship. So the first thing I want to focus on is focus your thoughts on the right things. Man, the Bible tells us over and over and over and over and over again to fix our thoughts on things above. Fix our, think, uh, our, our thinking on, on what God tells us to do. Romans tells us to renew our minds, to change the way we think. So, um, I played basketball for a really long time in my life. Oh, great, Pastor Ryan, another basketball reference. Um, well, it made a huge impact on me, so it's okay. Um, I started playing basketball in fifth grade, and I knew nothing about it. I was a blank slate to my coaches, which to some coaches, that's awesome, having a blank slate. So they would teach me how to shoot layups and dribble and everything like that. My parents were not athletically inclined. I mean, my dad taught me useless stuff like how to work a how to work a hammer and mow the lawn, useless stuff like using a chop saw. I mean, stuff that will never equate um, to real life and being a man, um, running a chainsaw when I was like 10, you know, I mean, just useless stuff. But, um, um, <laughs> but he didn't teach me basketball. But I would go home after practice, and I would shoot, not the way my coaches showed me, I would shoot the, way I, the only way I could get the ball in the rim at a 10-foot goal. And um, my shot was broken, but I practiced it so much it worked. So I would, I would grab the ball, and I based my shot off of NBA Live 2000. If that gives you um, any idea, don't base your basketball skills on a video game, all right? Um, but I would, I would bring the ball up here way over my head, and um, I would bring the ball way over my head, and I would try to shoot from over my head, and it wasn't right. It wasn't the way you shot. And... All through middle school, junior high, high school, I shot that way. And, I mean, I did pretty good. I didn't break any state records. I don't even know if I even broke school records. But I did average like a triple-double my senior year. I scored quite a few points and stuff like that. And I thought everything was good. I practiced so much, that was it. And then I got to college. And my coach in college is the second most winningest coach in Missouri history. And he cared enough for the team and he cared enough for my shot to fix it. And so when you shoot a certain way for like 10 plus years, it's not easy to fix. So before practice and after practice, I had to get up under the goal, shoot from my eyebrow, shoot from my eyebrow, shoot from my eyebrow, and with one arm, one arm for until until that was my shot. And it took a while. It took, took uh, probably two or three, four months of me doing that every practice. And guess what? It changed my shot. And my shot improved. At first it didn't, but then suddenly I'm like, wait, I can see the ball when I'm shooting? Is this something new? And um, my, my shot improved, and um, it helped my game. Now it's useless to me because I can't shoot anymore. But 
Um, what, what does this have to do with focusing your thoughts on the right thing? May I submit to you that sometimes we can focus on the wrong thing long enough that it seems right. I practiced the wrong thing for so long that it felt right. And when we focus on the wrong things in our life, number one, we're making disciples. Number two, are we putting stumbling blocks in front of our children's relationship with God? I want to read a few scriptures. Proverbs 4.23 says, Be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. Colossians 3.1-4 says, You have been raised to life with Christ. So set your hearts. So in the Bible, hearts and minds are interchangeable. Um, Set your hearts on the things that are in heaven where Christ sits on his throne at the right hand side of God. Keep your minds fixed on things there, not on things here on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your real life is in Christ and when he appears, then you too will appear with him and share his glory. Guys, the Bible's clear of what we need to focus on. And hear my heart here. Of what I'm about to say. I love you guys. And but I, I see that a lot of people, and, and what I'm about to say, there's nothing wrong with any of these, but when we focus and prioritize school events. Um, sports, weekends away with the family, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, pastor, I, everyone on staff gets so many Sundays off. They're, I mean, we, we get it because we need time. But when we prioritize that, man, there, there are families that just um, take off whole summers, which is, I mean, that's between them and God. But what I'm getting at is the Bible tells us to focus on the things of God and and, and what are we prioritizing in our thought process? Because we got to consider what are we teaching our kids when we focus on school events, when we focus on scholastics, when we focus on band, when we focus on weekend trips. What are we teaching our kids? Are we teaching them to make an idol and take the place of God? Are we? Well, that's more important. Are we saying we're not going to go to the body of Christ to collectively worship God with other saints today because we want to go to the lake. Whoa, man, that carries a little more weight saying it like that. But it does because that's what the church is. We are the body of Christ gathered together to worship God and to give him praise because he redeemed us and he gave us a relationship with him. And why would we want to skip that? And hear my heart. Because there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I played sports my whole life, and I was involved in, in um, I was a salutatorian in my class. I was involved in academic stuff, but if it was on Sunday, guess what? I had to miss games because my parents wouldn't let me play in them. There are very few exceptions that, like, mom, it's a tournament, and if we lose, you know, and she's like, okay. But if my coach scheduled practice on Sunday, my mom's like, you're not going. Practice six days this week. Um, 
And they, they scheduled practice on Wednesday night. My mom's like, you're not going. And the thing is, my coach would get mad at me, but he got over it. Because my mom and dad had this long vision for my life. Where I was focused on here and now. They're like, hey, dude, you're going to want your knees later. Give it a rest. And so what are we focusing on? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read Philippians 3, 18 and 19. It says, I have told you this many times before, and now repeat with tears. There are many whose lives make them enemies of Christ's death on the cross. They are, they are going to end up in hell because their God is their bodily desires. They are proud of what they should be ashamed of, and they think only of things that belong to this world. What did Colossians say? To set our minds on things above, not on things of this world. So, guys, we got to understand everything that, all these things, are, they're awesome. I love the, like, I love tubing. I love basketball. I love all this stuff. I love going to movies. I love it all. But they make horrible gods. They make horrible gods. And we focus on the wrong thing. We're giving them that place. We're teaching our kids. We're actually, if you get this, if we focus on the wrong things now, we're teaching our grandkids, whether you have grandkids or not. Because what you're discipling your children to do, they're going to do with their children. What are we focusing on? Some of us just might need to renew our minds in the things of God so we can focus on the things of God. Now, I don't want any of us to feel bad or guilty or anything like that. God doesn't work with guilt, and so I'm not, I don't want you to feel that way. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What I'm saying is, examine yourself. Say, God, am I focusing on things? Am I training my kids? What, is there something there? And if there is, if the Lord lays something on your heart, if he doesn't, good. Cool beans. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep going after Jesus. But if there is, say, God, help me. The second thing I want to say, and it flows right into it, is get involved in biblical community. You notice I didn't say get them involved. If you want your children involved in biblical community, a.k.a. the body of Christ, a.k.a. church, you need to be involved. We're not here to babysit your kids. We want everyone to be involved. Man, we have stuff. We, we don't just have youth on Sunday nights. We have adults. We have Bible studies. Like, we have groups. The ladies just had an event yesterday. The men are doing and the ladies are doing an event here in a couple weeks. We have something for everyone. We want holistic family involvement because we can't do this alone. The Bi- we, we are not designed to go it alone. The Bible tells us, Don't forsake the gathering of yourself with the body as some are in the habit of doing. The Bible instructs us to gather together. So often I talk to parents and and they want, they, they always open up, man, my kid's a good kid. He's just making some bad decisions. I I can't tell you how many all of us have heard that statement, right? And um and so they're like, I just don't know what to do. He just keeps making bad decisions. And my first thought, sometimes my first question, it depends on how bold I'm feeling in that moment, um, is who are you letting influence or what are you letting influence your children? Is it, Because here's the deal. Everything in your child's life 
fights for their influence. Everything in your life fights to influence you. So here's the deal. Is it social media? Is it their teachers? Is it their friends? Are you having any influence in their lives? I think it's so important to get them involved in biblical community so they can have godly influence there. Am I telling you to make them change their friends? Am I telling you to make them throw their phone away? In some cases, that might be the case. I've recommended both. (laughs) But, no, what I'm telling you is fight. Fight. Get down on your hands and knees before God and fight for the influence of them for Christ. Influence over them for Christ. Fight before God for them. And man, be intentional with what you do with them. Fight. Man, just this month, I've had about five parents tell me, this is crazy. It always blows my mind when I hear this. And my reaction, I have to curb because I really want to smack a parent. Um, so, but I've had... I've had parents tell me that when it comes to God, they let their children decide. I really let them decide whether they want to, you know, go to church or, or um, go after God. It's just really a personal decision. It is a personal decision. But you're the parent. You don't let them decide whether they go to school. You don't. I mean, hear me I'm, this is a passion point for me. I'm sorry. But you don't let them decide what they're going to eat. If I let my daughter, Sky, she's two and a half, decide whether she's going to eat. Dude, she eats chocolate all the time. I can't let her decide what she's going to eat. She would eat nothing but chocolate. And Keith and Martha and Angie and Pastor Chris would give it to her. And so they, they would, she would eat nothing but chocolate. I don't let my daughter decide when she goes outside to play. I decide that because guess what? She thinks the road is so attractive. It's the coolest place to be. I'm not going to let my kid get hit by a car. Why do we let our children decide the only thing that can affect their eternal destination, whether they go to heaven or hell? Everything else is, is finite. It's temporary. Well-intentioned Christian parents have told me this. You're, are you causing your kid to sin by the decisions you allow them to make? What type of disciple are we making? What type of disciple are we making? There is evidence today that backs us up. Um, it's, it's been um, dived into by my, Matt Chandler. He's a, a, a teaching pastor down in Texas, and um, he is on a, a, a group that has actually researched this. But used to be students were secularized when they left high school and went to college. But what's happening now is students are getting secularized before they leave home by well-intentioned Christian parents that don't make their kids go to church, that don't get biblical influence.
in their life. Well, um, Pastor Ryan, you don't see the devotions that we have at our house. Dude, that's awesome. I'm so I'm happy for you. I, I'm, I, I keep keep doing that, keep doing it. But the Bible tells us to gather together as a body. There's a reason why. There's a reason why. I've never once talked to a parent that said they did not want their kid to have an encounter with God. Never. Every parent, they just, I want my kid to encounter God. I just want them to have a real encounter with God. It's usually the parents that say, um, I let them make their own decisions. Um, it's kind of oxymoron. But you don't go to a basketball game and expect a touchdown. You don't go to a baseball game and expect a slam dunk. You know what I'm saying? You, 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 don't, you don't go to a, a football game and expect a free throw. You don't go to a play and expect a circus. Then why in the world do we expect God, to, to our children, to have an encounter with God when we don't bring them to the very place he promises to be? I'm going to just wrap this point up. Tim Charlies, he, uh, he wrote, Why You May Be Tempted to Neglect Your Church. He says, Neglecting to meet with God's people is a sign of overwhelming and outrageous pride. You have somehow determined either that the gifts God has given others are of no real consequence to you, or you have determined that you are so gifted you can happily survive without it. The reality, of course, is that God has made Christians to thrive and survive only in community. Lone Christians are dead Christians. End quote. The third thing I want to talk about today is walk in repentance. This is huge. This is a huge thing. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, if you want to disciple others of Christ, you have got to model this. This is big. And sometimes we, we think of repentance, and um, I've given different definitions, and it's, it's agreeing with God and then turning and going a new direction. That's by, by definition, that is repentance. But um, I'm going to quote uh, from the book, Good Kids, Big Events, and Matching T-Shirts. And this is probably the best definition of repentance I've ever read. It is lengthy, so buckle up, buttercup. Here we go. Um, Repentance is not simply saying you're sorry, feeling crummy about what you've done, or beating yourself up for your mistakes. True repentance is based on the realization that we've not simply broken God's rules, we've broken his heart. We have committed spiritual adultery and chosen another love over him. Repentance is not turning from bad behavior to good behavior. Repentance is when the Spirit enables us to see the things that we're treasuring and trusting in more than Jesus are causing our hearts to be grieved by our willingness to chase empty idols. But repentance is also the Spirit redirecting our hearts back to Jesus as the only one worthy of worship. In repentance, we not only receive forgiveness of Jesus, we also receive the assurance that we are covered by his righteousness. And so he, he writes this in, in a book to youth pastors about students. But so let's just change students for just a moment. For many people, having a good cry is synonymous with repentance. I have watched people appear to be sadder after they repented. That's not biblical repentance. 
In David's great song of repentance, he prayed, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And the bones of which you've broken, rejoice. The final outcome of repentance should be overwhelming joy and thankfulness. He's the district youth director of New York, and it's a great book. I would recommend anyone to read it, especially if you're in leadership. But, guys, what are we treasuring in our hearts more than God? Because the opposite of walking in repentance with God is idolatry and pride. Are we so proud that we won't repent? Are we so proud that we won't recognize empty idols that we're chasing? Sky, um, I, n- I never want to be that person that is too proud. Um, I'm human. Um, a, a lot of you guys realize that. Uh, I make mistakes, and you, everyone says amen. Uh, my wife is just back there nodding her head. Um, so, But every now and then, I overreact with my daughter. Um, you can only hear, I'm going to go outside a th- uh, 30 million times before you snap. Um, but every now and then I overreact. and But when I overreact, I calm down and I bring Sky to me. And sometimes I overreact with my wife. And Amy understands why I'm crying when I say I'm sorry. It's because she hit me. Um but Sky doesn't understand why Daddy's crying when he says, "Sky, I shouldn't have acted that way. That was wrong." She doesn't even know what I'm talking about at this point. She's like, "What are you talking about?" You know, like I want to go outside still. Remember, um, but I don't care if she knows what I'm talking about. I want my daughter and my son to see the fact that I want to be repentant. When I make a mistake, I pray in front of them. I pray in front of my family about my mistakes. I pray in front of my family about parenting mistakes. I ask God's forgiveness of them. You know, it might it might just be, God, you know, you love me through my mistakes. Forgive me of how I treated her because that's not how you treat me. It's uh, quite humbling when you remember how God treats us in his parenting. So what are we treasuring more than God. Some of us today, some of us parents, need to ask forgiveness of our children and repent before God. It shouldn't be a sad thing. It's a joyous thing. When you think about what Jesus did for us, the fact that he is our atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he paid the price that we can never pay, he lived the life that we can never live, and then he rose to death to set us free from the power of hell and death, that's a joyous thing. Why would you, why would you think that repentance is a sad thing, man? When, when I get done, man, I feel so good. I'm so happy that God loves me. And my, I want my kids to see that when we walk with God, it is a joyous thing. It's not a sad thing. When we make mistakes, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an amazing thing. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why do we think it's a sad thing to repent? It's a joyous thing. So some of us need to repent before God and ask forgiveness of our children. Kids, Teenagers, some of us need to ask forgiveness of our parents and repent before God today. The last thing I want to hit on, we got to pray 
in front of them, and we got to pray for them. This is pretty big. You might say, Pastor Ryan, prayer is a prayer is a private thing. I like to keep it private. Okay, it is kind of a private thing between you and God. So man up. Pray in front of your kids. Pray in front of your wife. Pray for your kids. Pray for your wife. Pray for your husband. Pray for your kids. Jesus modeled something. Jesus modeled something. And he modeled prayer so beautifully that his disciples asked him, Jesus, teach us to pray. And I think sometimes we think about this and like, man, his disciples were idiots. They didn't know anything. Why would he pick these guys that didn't even know how to pray? They've been following him for a year and didn't know how to pray, you know, like. But here's the deal. They did know how to pray. They, every, every one of his disciples was a Jew. And in that time, every Jewish boy would memorize um, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They, they understood God. They got God. And they knew how to pray. But when they saw Jesus pray, they said, there's something different. There's something different about how Jesus is praying. And, and finally, one of them worked up the nerve and said, Jesus, you got to teach us what you, what you got going on with God is what we want going on with God. Because what Jesus did, he prayed so intimately with God that they wanted it. It wasn't a now I lay me down to rest type of prayer. What did he te- What's the first line of the Lord's Prayer that we quote all the time? That's not, that's not what Jesus intended when he said, when you pray, pray like this. He gave them a, a model. He said, our Father. What? Instantly familiar. You know, the Jews would pray in such ways that they wouldn't say, God's name because it was so holy. In fact, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew never says the kingdom of God. It says the kingdom of heaven because God's name was so holy to them. And then Jesus comes along and brings a familiarity with God. And because of his death and his sacrifice on the cross, we too can cry, Abba. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He brings a familiarity to prayer. When we pray in front of our children, I challenge you to make them hungry for how you're praying. Make them want that familiarity with God. You're like, well, Pastor Ron, I don't pray like that. You know how you do pray like that? Know how you get to that point? Is pray more. The average Christian prays less than two minutes a day. The average pastor prays less than three minutes a day. Be above average. Pray in front of them. Pray for them. Jesus prayed in front of his disciples. He set the model. Yeah, whoa, I can't live up to Jesus. You're right, you can't. He did it for you. So go after it. Pray in front of them. Pray for them. Prayer is the only thing that can change anything. I Yes, I truly believe that. The, I have a couple reasons why I believe prayer is the only thing that can change anything. Number one, I know who I'm praying to. 
I'm praying to an infinite God that is almighty in power, that can do anything. I know who my God is. He's omnipotent and he loves me. He's my father. Jesus even says, how much more does God want to give his children good things? He's my father. He wants to bless you. He wants to answer your prayers. And the second thing is, I've seen too many answered prayers not to believe that God is going to show up. Prayer is the only thing that can change anything. Every night, um, since since our son's been born, we kind of split duty. Um, Amy takes care of Peyton, and I take care of Skye. And uh, it's really amazing what's happened because Skye was always a mommy's girl. And I've, the last two and a half years, I've been so jealous because I'm like, Skye, come to daddy. No, I want mommy. Like one time she was crying in the middle of the night and I went in there to calm her down and got up and everything. And she saw me walk in. She goes, no, I want mommy. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it, it wears on you. So two and a half years, she's been a mommy's girl and she's still a mommy's girl. She, she's still a mommy's girl. But when baby brother came, um, um, Peyton just, he takes a little bit more of mom's attention. So, you know, memories really start to form around two and a half years old. And what Sky's going to remember is not the two and a half years of having 100% of mommy's attention. She's going to remember Peyton being born and mommy directing her attention to Peyton and daddy's arms are wide open wide. Yep, that's what she's going to remember. Um, but um, every night I take and put Sky to bed. And a, a couple things happen every night. Um, number one, she climbs climbs up on the bed. I, I put her lullaby music on, and um, she steals my pillow, and then she lays in my spot. Um, yes, she has a queen size bed. And she's two and a half. Um, it was either turn the crib into a toddler bed or just give her a queen size bed so I can use the crib for Peyton. And so it works out great because now um, she puts me to sleep half the time, um, and her bed is more comfortable than ours. <laughs> But she steals my pillow, lays in my spot, and I wrestle with her. And then she calms down. She either grabs my earlobes or my beard, and she says, Do you want to talk to me, Daddy? Yeah, oh, that happens to me every night. I'm like, oh, jelly. And um, I'm like, yes, I want to talk to you. In the other room, Amy's like, put her to bed. I'm like, she wants to talk. She can talk as long as she wants. And so we talk about horses or we talk about cows every night. Every single night, horses or cows. And we talk about spotted horses. We talk about spotted cows. We talk about solid color. We talk about the unicorns. We, we, we talk about horses and cows for the most part. And, and it's a lot of fun. And then we pray. I ask Sky. I asked Sky, Sky, do you want to pray tonight? And I would say it's 50-50. Sometimes she does, sometimes she doesn't. And she's two and a half. But man, if we're sick, she'll pray. Lord Jesus, heal mommy. Lord Jesus, heal daddy. Lord Jesus, touch baby brother. If most of the time it's Jesus, bless baby brother. Bless mommy. Bless daddy, amen. Or she might just say, Lord Jesus, amen. 
You know, but when you look at the average Christian prays less than two minutes a day, she's gaining on you. And then I talked to her about Jesus. She could tell you, she doesn't understand yet, but I don't care. She could tell you propitiation, <laughs> which means a Tony sacrifice. And she could tell you that Jesus died on the tree for our sins. She could tell you that Jesus is no longer alive, or no longer dead, she, that Jesus is alive. And she can tell you that Jesus bippity bopped death. Now, <laughs> that's a story. When I hold Sky and I'm wrestling with her and she wants to be free, she says, bippity bop. And that's her magic word for daddy to let go of Sky. And I have to let go of her. That's, that's it. That's the deal. And when I was telling her over Easter about how Jesus was alive, I said, yeah, and the grave, death, let go of Jesus. She goes, oh, Jesus bippity-bopped death. But then I pray with her. She knows that when daddy prays, it's time to be quiet. Because I don't pray some token now I lay me down to rest. I pray, you know, I don't even know that, that prayer. Something to that effect. Man, I pray about our family issues. I pray over my children. I pray over my marriage. I pray. Man, this is like a 15-minute prayer. And I pray over the Ignite students. Man, like, my, my, my daughter knows Ignite students' names probably because I pray over them. I pray in front of them. I pray in front of her because I want her to see the value of prayer. I want her to see the intimacy with God. I want my daughter, one of the things I pray is that each day she falls more in love with Jesus. So I have friends that want their kids just to serve the Lord, and that's a good prayer, no matter what they do. I'm selfish. I pray that my kids are used to ministry. I pray that my kids will reach more with the gospel of Jesus Christ than all the generations before them and less than all the generations after them. I pray over her, and every night she falls asleep during my prayers, much like half of you guys are. Um, but I pray. Don't let me be guilty of praying for your kids more than you do. Please, 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 please don't let me be guilty. Guys, this isn't easy. I never said it would be. It's not easy to make disciples of Christ. It's simple, but not easy. Here's some good news. I've talked to some of our students and I've asked them, what can your parents do? What can your parents do to help build your relationship with Jesus? And the good news is, your kids are hungry. The, the two most common answers I got was family devotion time. I'm not talking like a 30-minute devotion where you watch a video. Man, just bust out the Bible, read it, and say, what, how does this apply to us? Man, most of your kids, if they come on Wednesday nights, know how to do a devotion because that's what we do every single Wednesday night. We do Bible study. And 
we just break down like 10, 15 verses. And man, it lasts an hour. And they love it. More family devotion. Not just led by the parents. They want to lead devotions. Wow, your kids are hungry. The second answer I got the most is more family prayer time. Not just led by the parents. They want to pray too. Corporately. They're hungry. So, I want to ask a few questions in closing. Do I have a relationship with Jesus? Because you can't make a disciple of Jesus if you're not a disciple of Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, man, I would love to make the introduction. Second thing I want to ask what type of disciple am I making? And am I putting stumbling blocks? Am I causing my children to sin? 